Hey, everybody, how you doing? And welcome to the John Riley Project. This is a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we're going to break down what's going on with the coronavirus, the bailouts, the stimulus package, all these um, funding proposals are being debated. Um, and then we're going to kind of hopscotch around, take a look at some of the current news, both regionally and locally here in San Diego County, share with you the good, the bad, the ugly. I've also got some binge-watching TV reviews for you. So this is we're going to be all over the place in this episode. And I think it's going to be... Well, in some cases, pretty heavy, and in other cases, a little bit of fun. So thanks for hanging with me. Um, but yeah, just a big shout out. Uh, this episode is sponsored by our friends at PowayStore.com. Uh, go check them out for all the Poway swag that you like to get. Um, but yeah, you know, the, what's going on in Washington, D.C. is remarkable. There has just been a flurry of conversation amongst the politicians about these bailout uh, proposals, these recovery proposals, these stimulus packages. And, you know, the debate is amongst, I guess, the progressives that want to make sure workers are getting the, the, the vast you know, majority of these bailout funds. There are the corporate Democrats and the corporate Republicans that want to see these big corporations bailed out. You know, so there's everyone sort of tripping over themselves on handing out all this free stuff, all this free money, these free benefits. Um, and it's almost like the whole notion of, you know, fiscal responsibility is just sort of thrown out the window. Um, it's become this desperation move just to do whatever it takes to recover the economy. And I get it. Um, I mean, there's going to be mass layoffs from this. There's no doubt about it. In fact, I was just checking today with one of the workers uh, for one of my clients, and he's like in his mid-20s. And, you know, he's got a job with my client. He's a great young man. Um, but he said almost all of his friends and his uh, um, neighbors in his apartment complex, just about all of them have been laid off. And they're all, you know, 20 somethings. So young people are already starting to feel it. I'm seeing reports of people I know on Facebook that are getting laid off. So this is just the beginning of it. I mean, we're seeing the exponential growth in the cases of coronavirus, the exponential growth in the deaths from coronavirus. But I think we're going to begin to see exponential growth in layoffs and the unemployment rate, which President Trump would, would tout, you know, as one of his great victories is now just going to completely blow up. So this is going to be crazy to watch this happen. Businesses are shutting down. Lots of restaurants are shutting down. I saw one report that said as many as 60% of restaurants are, have either closed or are about to close. Um, businesses that supply products and services for other companies that have closed, they're going to be affected. I just saw – this is interesting. I saw a, a guy that posted on Facebook, and I guess this is a group, a, a company that does sort of hot rod parts and accessories and and they are shutting down or essentially hitting pause for their business. They furloughed their employees, they've closed their doors and they're temporarily, I guess, you know, suspended. <laughs> Is that the right word? Um, and they'll hopefully come back to life when the economy, it looks a little more clear. So 
just huge disruption. Um, so I don't know what you're feeling through this, but I mean, this is real and it's going to get bad. And a lot of people said this was going to be the case. They were waiting because the, the stock market had been growing on this steady path now for about 12 years with really no recessions. It had been slow, steady growth through the, um, the Obama administration and continued in the Trump administration. Now, granted, I don't know how much credit you really want to give the president. I'm just using them as you know, marking points on the calendar. Um, but people said that at some point it's going to break. At some point, the stock market is way overinflated. It's way overvalued. It's going to break. People didn't know when, but they knew it would eventually happen. And all who would have thought it would have been a virus that would have actually triggered this? I think a lot of people thought, you know, the bond market would go sideways or we'd have another real estate implosion or maybe it was the student debt or maybe it was something else, you know, maybe something internationally. And it ended up being biological. <laughs> That's actually was the trigger for this which is just incredible. But now the debate that we're seeing, you know, in the news, in social media, conversations amongst friends, and President Trump was starting to, you know, parrot what a lot of other conservatives or right-wingers were talking about previously, which was don't make the cure worse than the problem or worse than the disease. And that's a that's a really interesting point to make, you know. So the question is, is, you know, we're going to have huge disruption um, in people's lives, deaths that are going to occur, huge health problems from the coronavirus. And that's going to have a certain order of magnitude. Meanwhile, the economy is going to also going through all of its challenges and mass layoffs and all these business closing. And and then, you know, again, the, the, the economy all kind of waiting for that one straw to break the camel's back and that straw was just placed in the camel's back and now things are collapsing. So that has a certain order of magnitude. And and so people are saying, you know, don't make the cure worse than the problem. And people are saying, well, you know, have a sense of proportion. And and it, it's a very interesting question. It's a moral question. It's one that I don't really know the answer, you know, as far as how do you weigh those two things lives, economy, and the economy does affect lives, um, you know, what's the right balance? In some ways, it's like comparing apples with oranges. Um, but, you know, the Texas lieutenant government came forward. And he suggested the grandparents are willing to die to save the U.S. economy for all the young people. And, and this is also sort of amazing people talking about this, like, should we sacrifice a whole group of people so a whole different group of people can have hope and have a future. I mean, it's again, this is like a friggin' dystopian sci-fi movie, man. You know, like some kind of crazy future that was only written in science fiction is now reality. So incredible to see a lieutenant governor suggesting we sacrifice a whole generation of people as we go through this. Um, but, you know. I've seen people like on MSNBC, like um, was a Lawrence, is it o Lawrence O'Donnell, I think, and then um, Rachel Maddow, and and they're really focused on the deaths, which I get it, I, it makes sense to me, and and people are saying, how can you compare the economy with with the with the uh, medical situation? People are dying; they're going to die. How can you? You know, think that the uh, getting the stock market back up to twenty seven thousand is more important than a person dying. 
And but then that's when they're really pulling out the hardcore morality card on this. And it's an interesting point because, um, you know, think this all the way through. Now, let's just say that there was and again, forgive me that I'm presenting a hypothetical, but let's just pretend there's one person that's going to die. How much of societal disruption, how much cost to the economy, how many losses of jobs, how many foreclosures, how many people, um, you know, on, you know, in despair, in depression because of the economic fallout, how much of that has to occur to save one life? Again, a moral question. How do you balance the two? But I think that's a fair point to make because a lot of times people are saying this is about life and death, but you always have to ask at what cost. And I know that for some people that just sends shivers up their back, but everything has trade-offs. Everything, you know, there, there, if you, if you want something of this, you got to give up something of that. There's always a trade-off. And for each of us, that trade-off position is very different. For some of us, you know, the, you would, it would be an unlimited amount of money to save one life. And there's other people that would think the opposite, that they're willing, like the lieutenant governor of, of Texas, he's willing to sacrifice a whole generation of people to save the economy for everybody else. So in the way it's presented in the media, it's like it's like a false choice. You know, you're either for A or you're for B. You know, you're for saving the economy and for people dying or you're for saving people from dying, but you're also for total economic collapse, which is a total false choice. Um, now, how this ends up being sorted out will clearly be somewhere in the middle. Um, I'm I'm of the belief that there's really a third way and we just haven't gotten to it yet. And it's testing people. If we had testing kits where people could be tested, we could start triaging people. We could start identifying people that have the virus and then working to quarantine them. We could have people that have already had the virus and have built up an immunity and therefore, those people would be able to freely participate in the economy. Then there would be other people that have not yet caught the virus. And then those are the people that would have to be extraordinarily careful or may choose to self-quarantine. But if we had testing kits, we'd have data, we'd have facts, we'd have information. So then we can make more intelligent choices, more fine-tuned choices, rather than having this sort of mass or virtual mass shelter at home situation. And um, it, it's just, it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable deal what's going on. Um, I mean, and, and now this bailout is coming and, you know, they're going to try to save the economy because like I said, they're going to end up following the middle. And, and what they're going to end up doing is trying to save as many lives as they can and trying to save the economy and, and cost won't matter. And so they're already talking about this bailout being $6 trillion, $6 trillion. I mean, that's – what was Obama's Stimulus Recovery Act coming out of 2000 – well, he was inaugurated in 2009. I think that was around – was it $787 billion? For some reason, that number sticks in my head. So this is potentially six or seven times bigger than the Obama um, recovery. Um, so this is huge money. 
And then what what ends up happening is, you, yeah, every every person with an agenda is now coming out of the out of the woodwork trying to make a case on why they deserve the money. It's every corporatist, you know, that wants the money. We've talked about corporatists. Those are the cronies, right? People call them crony capitalists. I don't even like to mix the word capitalism with it because capitalism is about private enterprise, not public funding. Um, capitalism is about free trade, not coercion of other people to force bailouts. So corporatists are the ones that rig the economy, that buy influence among politicians to distort the market, block competition, corner the market for themselves. So the corporatists are all coming out of the woodwork, both Republican and Democrat. And at the same time, all of the you know people, the progressives, the people with the socialist agenda, they're coming out of the woodwork and demanding all of this redistribution. A lot of the same themes that we've heard from Bernie Sanders and, and Andrew Yang and universal basic income and canceling student debt and the list goes on and on. So they're all coming out uh, with this and it's all being debated. Nothing has been finalized. And well, actually, I think they did, excuse me, I, about a week and a half ago, I know they, they did some sort of an agreement um, and it, they caught fire for it because it was about paid time off, but the super big corporations weren't part of it. You know, again, more corporatism going on right there. Um, so we're going to see a series of bills that I think are going to come from Congress. And of course, there's, you know, lots of... Uh, Emotion, um, lots of anxiety, and Republicans and Democrats are having trouble coming together. So, what's going to stick? I don't know. I mean, if you try to pay attention to every one of these proposals, it'll just drive you batty. Um, now, what was interesting is on Sunday night, I don't know if you got a chance to watch 60 Minutes, but um, Neil Kashkari was on, and he is, I guess, one of the, not the federal chair, uh, uh, reserve chairman, but he's like one of the, you know, the bank. One of the, I think there's like six presidents of the various banks that are all part of the Federal Reserve, if I have my facts right. And he is was in charge of one of those banks. An interesting guy. I mean, he um, first of all, uh, a financial guy. He was he was part of engine. He was, I think, the assistant to the Secretary of the Treasury during the TARP. You know, the troubled assets was it troubled asset relief package? You know, that whole big bailout under the Bush Obama when they bailed out the auto companies, bailed out the banks. He was the quarterback of that and, you know, kind of decide who gets the money and how it went down. So he's a financial professional, you know, big shot in the Federal Reserve. And his last name is Cash Carey, which is perfect. What a great name for a financial guy, Neil Cash Carey. Um, and actually, he, he ran for governor here in the state of California, I think one or two cycles ago. But he was, you know, on 60 Minutes and, you know, pretty sharp man. And he was explaining everything. And and basically he said, we are going to completely flood the market with cash. There are no limits. He said what we learned in the 2008 situation is that we were too careful. We were too cautious. This time we're going to go over the top. We're going to be overly generous. We are going to flood the system with cash. And you hear that, and immediately I'm thinking, okay, that might help now, but that's going to set up huge potential inflation coming in the future. Now, I don't know enough about monetary policy to understand the details, but to me, that's always a big fear. 
Because if there's a lot more cash in the market, that's going to create a lot more demand. And when you have more demand and limited supply, that's going to make prices go up. We're going to see inflation because the dollars are not going to be nearly as valuable as they once were because there's so many more in the marketplace. So uh, this, I think we're going to see how this one plays out. Uh, But it seems like they're they're not pulling any punches. They're going to go for it and just print as much money as they need. And- you know, a lot of it's electronic. You know, they're just going to ratchet up the digits as much as they need. And then here come the bailouts for the corporations. And, you know, they're all, again, they're all lining up. Apparently, the Republicans want to set aside $500 billion um, that can be dished out. And I think in the form of loans, maybe some of it in the form of cash payments that can be used at the discretion of President Trump. And you're thinking, Oh, yeah, right. Um, So this is when people talk about government picking winners and losers. This is when, again, those that buy influence are going to be able to get favors and then they'll be able to move to the front of the line to get that money, which is insane. It's outrageous. And then you're seeing these cruise ships and they want to be bailed out. And these cruise ships don't even fly an American flag. They fly the flag of foreign nations so they could avoid paying American taxes or at least minimize it. And now they're first in line to get the taxpayer money from these bailouts. Um, And then President Trump wants to bail out the airlines. He wants to bail out Boeing. And you're thinking, what the hell is going on here? I mean, these are companies that, first of all, should have been saving money. These are companies that even if an airline went out of business, like just pretend for a minute that Southwest Airlines suddenly was out of business. Well, those planes still exist. Some other company would buy them. You know, maybe um, – You know, we see Richard Branson come in from Virgin and put his uh, brand name on that and and it would become his airline or maybe United or someone else would buy them or maybe some upstart would buy them and then start running those lines again. So the the, the airlines bailing them out, you know, sure, they're going through a tough time. Um, You know, those the plane flights are being canceled. There's a lot less runs. But why do airlines cruise ships, all these other corporations. I mean, Vegas wants to be bailed out because no one's going to the hotels. No one's gambling. Well, when when we're in trouble, when we have financial challenges, do the cruise ship companies come offering us money? Do the, um, you know, do they send us checks in the mail? Do the, uh, does, do Vegas hotels send us checks in the mail? No, they don't, but they want to get in line. And that's why I just think these these um, corporate bailouts have to be resisted at every level. You know, someone I saw once, someone post today on, on Facebook, they said, what has General Motors ever done for you? Now, granted, we used to have a Chevy Bolt um, electric car. It was a great car, by the way. Um, but really, you know, we, we paid for that car. We leased it. Um, but now, you know, what was GM coming knocking on our door saying, hey, here you go. Here's a check for $10,000. No, they're not doing it. But they expect they want to be bailed out. Now, again, I don't know if GM is part of the mix here, but all these corporations, it's the same thing. Now, GM, of course, was one of the big recipients of the TARP funding 12 years ago, um, which, again, I thought was nuts. So then they're saying, okay, well, these big companies need to get get bailed out. But then people are saying, well, what about small business? And the Democrats, you know, are trying to be aligned with the so-called little guy. Um, But, you know, when people say small business, that – 
because there's small business and then there's medium-sized business and there's large businesses. And the definition of small business by just about every demographer is 500 employees and less. Not about you, but a 500-person employee a company, that's not a tiny business. That's a pretty big enterprise. Um, normally, when we think of small business, you think of a mom and pop, a, a baker, a restaurant owner, where you might have five employees, you might have 20 employees. So the people are asking, well, what about them? Are they going to get bailed out? You know, all these restaurants that are just going through all this turmoil, what about them? And then people are saying, oh, yeah, we'll have a program for them. But then you think, well, what about self-employed people? I mean, I'm one of those people. Um, I'm a solopreneur. I have an S corporation, but I'm the only employee. And I do freelance work. I do consulting. I do project work. Um, You know, so what about me? You know, and so – it's very interesting how they're trying to decide who gets what and how much. And now they want to put strings attached. Like you can get this money, but you can't use it for um, executive compensation. You can't use it for stock buyback. And again, that's so hard to manage because once you get a check and you deposit it into your account, it's fungible. It gets mixed up with all the other money. So when you decide to pay your bills and do different things, how do you know which dollar came from which source? You, You basically don't. Um, and even, and even if you put it into a different bucket and had a separate account for it, you can still make creative decisions on which money or which bills are paid from which bucket. So you can still play the game. Um, so I, I, I just, it's just incredible to me, um, how they're going through this. Now, certainly on one level, you can make the claim that, well, yeah, government is shutting these businesses down. In some cases, they're making it nearly impossible for them to do business in other cases, they're just flat out telling them to close. And so you're th- so I think, well, definitely there should be compensation for that because they're, they're being coerced to shut down. And so they deserve to be compensated. And that's, I think, what they're doing in Scandinavia. I think I saw in Denmark that the government is going to be paying, what was it, 80 or 90 percent of the payroll costs for all of their employees. But even if you believe that, then you have to say, well, where in the hell does the federal government get the money from? Well, they end up getting it from us. So it's cyclical. We end up being taxed. The money goes into the into the fund and then using that money to bail us out. So it's just nuts the way this whole thing is being – is the whole way the whole thing is happening. Um, but in the end, yeah, I think you have a case of government picking winners and losers. And so that's why I've always been of the belief that if, if you have to do these kinds of cash bailouts, they have to go to everybody in approximately the exact same amount or according to some algorithm so it's scalable based on the size of the business. Uh, if you have to do it in the first place, I don't think corporations should get a penny in my opinion. Um, but – if they are going to do it, I think it has to be where they're not selectively choosing industries, selectively choosing this company over that company, because that's all the influence. That's all the cronyism. That's all of the the, you know, that that's all of the the ugliness of what happens in D.C. And that we can't have that. But, you know, that's probably what's going to happen. And then they're talking about the cash handouts that go to individuals. And these numbers are all over the place, depending on the proposal. Some are saying it's $1,500 per adult. Some are saying it should be $1,500 adult two times, one per month for two months. Others are saying, no, it's just a single $1,200 check. 
all of these are being bounced around, Republicans, Democrats. Um, sometimes, you know, the Democrats are, are wanting more money for individuals. I've even seen some proposals, $10,000 per person. And, and then, you know, children deserve some money and only certain children qualify. And how, how, do, you, how do you make those decisions? And then even if, like, let's just say you, what some of the proposals have been that the cash handouts will go to people that make less than, I've seen one proposal, $100,000 a year, some less than $75,000 a year. So you figure, okay, those in the middle class and lower middle class and poor would all get a check. Those in the upper middle class, those that are rich wouldn't get a check at all. But then meanwhile, with all these corporate bailouts, all the super wealthy, they would get bailed out. They would get money. So then you have this one huge group that doesn't get anything. You know, the, the really rich get the money. The really poor get the money. You know, some in the middle class get the money. But a whole other group gets nothing. Now, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and then especially when you say $75,000 a year or $100,000 a year as a cutoff point, well, that salary means a it makes a huge difference if you live in Arkansas or if you live in San Diego. It makes a huge, huge difference if you live in Kansas than if you live in San Francisco because the cost of living is so dramatically different. Um, the, the typical jobs pay very different rates. So, again, how do you manage that? Um, I, I, and then, you know, now they're also talking about mortgage and, and rent moratoriums. And you're thinking, yeah, we don't have to pay mortgages. Yeah, we don't have to pay the rent. But then, you know, what happens on the other side of that transaction? If we are not paying rent, then what does that um, property owner have to do? The property owner now no, doesn't have income to pay his property taxes. It doesn't have income to pay for maintenance and repairs. Doesn't have income for himself, which is his own income, and for the employees that he might happen to have, and for the, you know, for the the repairs and the maintenance people that come in, and for you know putting on a new roof on that property. How does that, you know, cascade through the system? If you just say uh, rent and mortgage payments are temporarily suspended, and then even if they are temporarily suspended, let's just say no one has to pay rent or mortgage for the month of April. Well, when we get into May, do they have to pay double to make up for April? Or does, do we just sort of skip a month, just pretend April didn't exist? Um, but again, it creates a cascading problem. And then you might say, well, what about mortgages? Well, the banks on the other end, the mortgage people on the other end, they're the ones that are getting paid when they when they get the the, uh, the mortgage, but they have to make payments to the people downstream from them, for other banks that they've loaned from, or for their company and their operations and their employees. How is that managed? So sometimes people don't really think this all the way through. It's it's hard to really hit the pause button because everything is so tightly integrated. Um, and then, you know, the funny thing about this, and this is what I predicted was going to happen with Andrew Yang and his universal basic income. Remember, that was a thousand bucks a month for every American. And, and I will say, if you had to give it out, giving it to everybody makes sense. It just simplifies it and takes the guesswork out of it, takes the picking winners and losers out of it, takes a lot of the cronyism out of it. Um, the special interest influences out of it. 
But I always said from the very beginning that even if Andrew Yang's proposal of $1,000 a month was put forward, it would never, ever be enough. And that's true, proving true now because people are seeing 1200 bucks a month, 1500 bucks a month. I'm seeing people saying, what the hell? I can't even live on that. What the hell? That doesn't even pay for a month's rent. We need more than that. And there you go. So this whole thing, it's like everybody is lining up. Um, all the corporatists, the cronies are all lining up to get you know special favors and special treatment for their companies. All of the individual, um, you know, the socialists that want to protect the worker, protect the working man, they're all getting in line trying to put all of their, um, you know, proposals and pork into the deal. And they're all making moral cases, you know, for workers, for small businesses, for big corporations. And it's this flurry of virtue signaling that's going on, not just in Washington, D.C., but amongst the populace. And you see the chatter. At least I see the chatter on Facebook. It's crazy. Um, and then you see, every, like I said, the pork. Every kind of special interest is seeing this as an opportunity. You know, it's like um, uh, Rahm Emanuel. Remember, we talked about him before. You know, never let a good crisis go to waste. And so, you know, we're, we're seeing from the Democrats proposals seeking to eliminate the debt held by the U.S. Postal Service. Um, you know, and again, that goes back to the pensions and having to front load them and everything. They want to use this to eliminate the debt for the for the uh, postal workers. But what what does that do? That doesn't put more money in the postal workers' pocket. It's just helping to resolve some kind of a special interest need. Um, there's uh, proposals to require same day voter registration across the United States. And again, I think it's a very valid proposal. I, I support that proposal, but they're putting it into the bill. Um, they want to pay off $10,000 in student debt per person. Wow. So again, everyone's lining up. And so again, I have an objection to this because now people that didn't go to college, that chose not to go to college, that wanted to pursue a career that didn't involve college at all, now they are paying taxes to subsidize other people so they can go to college for free or at least have $10,000 of their student debt erased. So that's in the, uh, in the mix. And they want to force federal agencies to explain to Congress how they're increasing the usage of minority banks because they want to have certain demographic profiles of certain bank ownership. You know, they, they're, they're getting all these different agendas mixed in. Um, we're seeing other proposals like the automatic extension of – I mean I'm reading this from here. The automatic extension of non-immigrant visas, um, which again, I, I'm, I'm generally supportive of making uh, immigration a lot easier, making legal immigration a lot easier. That's a good proposal in my opinion. But why is it in the stimulus bill? Um, they want to restrict colleges pro pro from providing information about citizen sh um, status. The bill would also allocate $35 million to the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. And even the Republicans are trying to mix in money to pay for part of the wall on the southern border. Um, it's unbelievable. Now, I will say, you know, full disclosure, um, about two or three weeks ago, Rand Paul did a similar thing. Um, Rand Paul put forward an amendment that he wanted to end the Afghanistan war um, as part of the first round of recovery bills. 
And he got skewered for that. People are saying Rand Paul was responsible for people dying because he put this amendment forward to end the Afghanistan war, which had nothing at all to do with the recovery for the coronavirus. And that's true. It did have nothing to do with it. But it's ridiculous that they were skewering Rand Paul for that. And now they're all doing it themselves. And never mind the fact that Rand Paul's proposal to end the Afghanistan war would have, A, saved lives in Afghanistan, American lives and Afghani lives, and B, would have cleared money off the table that's being spent on a foolish 20-year-long war that could have been used to help pay for the Recovery Act. So I thought if you're going to have any of these sort of um, earmarks or pork projects mixed in, that one at least made a lot of sense to me. Um, now, all these other ones, you know, on, on their own, you know, there, there's some benefit. But it's just – see, everyone's lining up. Everyone's getting organized. Everyone is, is heading to the feeding trough and figuring $6 trillion is on the table. We need to get our piece of that action. Um, you know, I said – in my previous podcast, chaos is a ladder. And that's what's happening here. The people see it as a ladder. Now, from my perspective, when I say chaos is a ladder, I didn't mean it at the expense of other people. I meant it as it's a great opportunity for you to reposition your business, to reposition your company brand, to switch careers, to start your own small business, to make you know, interesting changes in your life. Great time to do it when there's chaos, when there's a slowdown of the economy to reorient, reposition yourself and then begin stepping forward. But in some, for some people, they see chaos as an opportunity to take advantage of other people, to tear other people down, to enrich themselves at the expense of other people. And in some cases, you know, you can make a claim that there's a lot of virtue in these bailout bills because there's going to be a huge number of people that are going to be totally disrupted. Um, unemployment rates are going to go through the roof. But there's a lot of underhanded, unscrupulous uh, people that are getting in line and they're just in the shadows. You know, it's just going to be a line item in the bill buried on page 362 and and the Congress is going to probably get the bill and have to pass it in 12 hours, which is what they typically do. No one ever reads it. It's loaded with pork and it just flies through. And that's probably what's going to happen. And get this. The crazy part about it is, is remember in, in the Democratic debates, Elizabeth Warren was promising universal health care and Bernie Sanders universal health care and, and paying off college debt and all these programs. And they kept getting hammered. How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for single payer health care? How are you going to pay for erasing student debt? Tuition free colleges. How are you going to pay for that? Is anyone asking that now? Six trillion dollars for this stimulus package and nobody is asking about how you can pay for it. At least Rand Paul's proposal to end the Afghanistan war would have come up with a little bit of it. Um, but they're just going to print the money. And just like Neil Cash Carey said, we're going to flood the market with cash from the Federal Reserve's perspective. Yeah, it means money is going to go to the banks and they're going to push the money through the system that way. Congress is going to push money through other means by handing out checks to corporations, handing out checks to individuals. And all this money is just going to get printed. It's going to be created out of thin air. Inflation is probably going to go up. And then I start to think to myself, well, if no one cares how it's being paid for 
And if money can just be printed out of thin air, then why in the hell are we being burdened with taxation? Why are we having such insane high taxes at the federal level and at the state level if they can just, you know, Congress can wave their magic wand and fund it all? Now, I'm, I'm saying that somewhat rhetorical, somewhat tongue-in-cheek. I mean, I understand to a degree how the system works, but I'm being, you know, uh, kind of cynical through this whole process because it's ridiculous. And it was just like how many weeks ago we had the Democratic debates when they were just hammering those candidates about how they were going to pay for it. And now no one cares. So we're going to hear a lot more from this. Um you know, I know that the Republicans and Democrats are battling yesterday, which was Monday, and they've been battling today. And who knows how this is going to sort out. And they've said Mnuchin used an analogy that you know, he says, think of it like a baseball game. We have nine innings. We're only in the second inning. There's going to be additional um, troughs of money, different recovery acts that are going to be coming over a period of time. So they're in the I guess maybe they're in the middle of the second inning right now because I think this is the second trough of cash. But it's. I don't know. I'm I'm paying attention to it, paying attention to it to a degree, but not in incredible detail because it's hard to keep up with all these proposals. But the whole thing is fascinating. Speaking of fascinating, I do have to make a comment about President Trump and these press conferences he's been having. And they're amazing. Um, You know, he gets there up there on stage, typically with Vice President Pence. Sometimes Dr. Fauci, I think his name is, Um, he's the scientist, the doctor that's really been the the spokesperson for uh, coronavirus. And then there's another doctor, is it, I think her name is Bricks. Um, So she's up there. The Surgeon General is typically up there. And the funny thing is, is that there's usually 12 or 15 people on that little stage and they're all rubbing shoulders. And this whole six foot um, social distancing doesn't matter. It's a group of over 10 people. That doesn't matter. The rules don't apply to them. Trump just wants to have this backdrop of official looking people behind him to show his support, um, show support for himself. But it's interesting to watch these press conferences because it's a Trump show all over again. You remember in 2015 when Trump announced his presidency and in the primary season, people said he sucked the oxygen out of the room because he'd have these rallies. He'd do these antics that were so outrageous, so crazy that the media just covered him 24-7. And other political candidates that were running in the GOP primary in 2016 got very little coverage in the media. Well, now the same thing's happening again, and the media is playing right into it. So Trump is up there every day having his press conference, getting FaceTime. He's on the news every single day. And where's Joe Biden? Joe Biden is like falling off the face of the earth. Um, so you barely see him at all. So And he knows that. And Trump can't hand, have his big rallies anymore. You know, so what he's doing is he's – you know, when he, remember when he was picking on um, – uh, now I'm, I'm spacing on his name, uh, Alexander, the uh, the reporter from NBC. I commented about him on my last podcast. Um, anyways, he was bashing on the reporter. Like, you know, I say you're a bad reporter. Um, you know, he was wagging his finger at all these people in the press, telling the press room, oh, we don't need most of you. I just like to pick two or three of my favorites. The rest of you can go home. You're all fake news. Those kinds of comments are just like what he does in his big rallies when he gets his base all fired up and he starts making fun of all the different groups and they get all um, energized. 
uh, I say Bush, Trump is doing that to a great degree right now when he has these press conferences. He's playing the game. And you'll notice that he will jump in and interject around all the different people because he has to be the focus of attention. And he's got an election coming up in, what, maybe seven months or so, um, seven, eight months. So uh, this, again, is playing into his hand. So watch what happens and watch how the media plays along. And you wonder, are they playing along like sheep or what are they doing? Uh, but they do play along with it. And it's sad in a lot of ways. So then the other part of it is, is now we're starting to hear talk about this Defense Production Act. And this is where the president of the United States should be given this special authority to tell manufacturing companies what to produce. And people hearken back to Rosie the Riveter and World War II and how these manufacturing companies were able to transform themselves to crank out B, B-52 bombers and, and, and fighter aircraft and naval ships and weapons and bombs um, because they were able to repurpose these factories that were previously making automobiles and refrigerators and everything else. And it's it's a it's it's fun or maybe it feels good to hearken back to those kinds of ideas. Maybe it feels good to um, think that America is going to come together to fight for a common cause. And I, I can see the, how that's romantic in some people's eyes. But really, do you want Trump to be the manufacturer in chief? Do people really want President Trump to be the authoritarian telling companies what to produce and in what quantity and how much he's going to pay for it. That's very dangerous. That is a very serious authoritarian economy. And I know people will make um, comparisons to President Trump with, um, with Adolf Hitler. And some people think those are dead on and other people think they're an unfair. But one thing is very true is that's what Nazi Germany did is that they had the, – the government didn't own the means of production, but the government had huge control of the means of production. And the government was dictating – I'm talking about the German government under Hitler – was dictating to all of those companies what to build, how much to build, um, and all for a nationalist cause. I, America was doing it as well. But wouldn't it be better – if companies simply volunteered to do it, you know, if companies, if they have excess manufacturing capacity, they could step it up. If companies could volunteer to do it, and especially if prices could fluctuate with demand, um, you know, what's what's his name? Um, Governor Cuomo in New York is upset about these ventilators and how uh, you know he needs ventilators in New York and he does need ventilators. But he says, I'm competing against the other 49 states to get ventilators and it's driving the cost up for everybody else. Well, you know what? If the cost of those ventilators begins increasing, then you're going to see many manufacturing companies happily jump into the game because they see the opportunity for profit. And once they do, and more and more jump in and then more and more inventory is made available, those prices will relax and those prices will come down. So there is an opportunity here to fulfill the need for more hospital gowns and masks and ventilators without having the president becoming, you know, the manufacturer in chief. And just as an aside, to me, it's amazing that um, 
that hospitals don't have protective gear. And it's not for a lack of money. It's just there's not enough of it. And it's amazing. It almost makes me think of America as a third world country. So maybe these companies just haven't been producing enough. Uh, so hopefully they're turning up the needle and, and actually manufacturing more. Um, you know, my wife, you know, she, she works in a hospital. Sometimes she has to wear a mask. Um, and when she does, she ends up reusing that mask multiple times in the day. In the past, when, after you use a mask when you're done, they used to throw it out. But they can't do that anymore. So um, it's remarkable what's going on with this. But I am very distrustful if we're going to have Trump or one of Trump's cronies in there dictating to different companies, you need to order, you need to manufacture this and you need to manufacture that. Um, I, I just think that's, that's, a, that's a really bad recipe. Um, so we'll see how this goes. I mean, this is the whole thing is fascinating. I think it's going to continue to get worse before it gets better. Um, I think health wise, the virus is going to be way more cases. There's going to be sadly way more deaths. It's going to accelerate exponentially. New York is definitely going through a huge spike and Cuomo has said, you know, he's he's the canary in the coal mine and all the other states are going to experience it in relative proportions. And I believe that's true. We're going to see a huge disruption to the economy. And then we're going to see all these people jumping in, trying to solve the problem, politicians, companies, um, and and in many ways, kind of in some cases, just making things worse. And uh, so I'm of the opinion a lot of this I can't control it, but it is fascinating to me, and, and I, I watch it play out. I'm very curious to see how we come out the other side. The way we came out of the 2008 Great Recession was very, very painful. Um, is that going to be the same thing again, or is it going to be okay? You know, the Kashkari's flooding the market with money. These politicians are tripping over themselves. They got $6 trillion to pass around, and everything is great. And then are we going to then maybe two, three years down the line, are we going to start seeing huge inflation again, kind of like what happened in the late 70s and early 80s? Um, I don't know. I'm not sure. But we'll see how it goes. Okay, I got more stuff here. I got the good, the bad, and the ugly, my my big uh, TV binge-watching recommendation list. But first... Uh, just want a big shout out to our sponsor, PowayStore.com. If you live here in the city in the country, go to PowayStore.com and they've got all kinds of gear there. They've got uh, T-shirts and hats and, well, no hats. They have T-shirts, sweatshirts, stickers, a bunch of other things there, all with Poway logos. Cool stuff if you live in or love the city in the country. Um, and then also, by the way, one of the things I just started doing, um, and if you're interested, is I created a little store on my podcast website. So if you go to johnreillyproject.com and go to the top menu and look for shop, and I put a couple of pro products out there. So there's a, a John Riley Project hat um, that has the uh, the light bulb um, icon on the hat. So it's like a baseball cap. And then I um, have a long sleeve T-shirt, the Pursue Happiness shirt, which I've shown in some of these previous uh, podcasts. And it's a shirt that I give out regularly to my guests as a thank you for being on the podcast. And then I created, oh, a coffee mug. Uh, the John Riley Project coffee mug, and I'll be ordering some of those here momentarily because I just got the store up, but uh, hoping to show show that off in some of our future podcasts. 
Okay, so the good, the bad, and the ugly. This is a segment I do where I can kind of bounce around and kind of categorize some different ideas and different topics and have a little fun with it. So in the good, I want to talk about some binge-watching recommendations. And a guy in town, um, he's a realtor in town. His name's Rick McCandless. If you live here in Poway, you probably know who he is. Great guy. He used to live across the street from us. And he was our realtor when we sold our home and we bought this new one. So love the guy. And he had said, oh, I've watched all these shows. I've already watched Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones. And I watched um, Designated Survivor. And, and he listed all these other shows. And he's, I need some recommendations for more binge watching. And, you know, a lot of us are all staying at home. We're sheltering in place. We're all looking for some new things to watch. And so I thought I'd just share with you some of the things that I've been watching over the last four or five years that I really like. And I generally really, really like TV series because it gives you that that fun where you have an episode and then you want to get the next episode. And I find myself not watching movies nearly as much as I used to. So I love a good series. And sometimes I'll find great ones that are like little hidden ones I never would have thought. Sometimes I found, um, you know, the obvious ones that everyone watches. But then I'm, I will also experiment with some and, and find out uh, they're duds. And even some I'll stick with them if they're a little bit of, of a dud, if they happen to be in the category I like. So here's a list of some of them. Better Call Saul. You got to watch that. I mean, that's the prequel of Breaking Bad. Absolutely love that show. I think you can even say that Better Call Saul might be better than Breaking Bad. Um, the the character Jimmy uh, McGill or Saul Goodman, Saul Goodman, um, what a great character in that show. Um, I know the most recent season just started a few weeks ago on AMC. And I think that it's season five. So I've seen season one through four. I haven't seen five. I'll probably watch it when I can watch the whole series in a, in a, in one big uh, binge stream, but great show. Better call Saul. Um, Spartacus is a really good one on Netflix. If you like the, um, the show or the movie gladiator with Russell Crowe, Spartacus is like right in that wheelhouse. Um, and you know, it's, is it like the, the gladiator movie with Kirk Douglas? Not really. I mean, but it's, it's gladiators, it's Roman high society, it's slavery. Um, and it's just a fascinating movie. And there's a lot of interesting characters in that. And a lot of the different gladiators all have these very different personas and characters. And you get, you begin to love some of them and root for some of them. I really, really liked it. And then it also followed a path of a little bit of Roman history. And if I recall, there might have been even a little bit of overlap with Christianity, if I recall. Um, it's a little bit fuzzy. I remember seeing that show probably four or five years ago, but I, I strongly recommend Spartacus. Um, the Tudors is a really good one on Netflix. That was about Henry VIII and all of his wives. And I love period piece movies. Um, I love the 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 costumery and and the and the set design. And I I again I sound like a I sound like a uh, you know, an aficionado of, of, uh, of theater when I say that. But I do. I really like period pieces. Um, and I think the Tudors does a really good job of, you know, walking you through the whole Henry VIII um, saga. The Crown was very good on, on Netflix. And, and this is one where it's about the royal family, you know, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Charles and that whole thing. And it, it goes back to how they started, how, you know, 
Queen Elizabeth's father was given the throne because her uncle abdicated it, and then how Queen Elizabeth was the anointed one, and then how she met Prince Philip and their children, and how they grew up, and all their adventures when they were the young prince and princess. Um, fascinating. And I remember for the longest time, people were you know, completely caught up in, in British royalty, especially when Charles and Lady Di got married. I never really followed it. I just heard the chirping in, in the background, you know, Princess Anne and, you know, all these different characters. But I never really understood the family tree and how they all fit together and the stories. And I was confused why, you know, Queen Elizabeth's husband wasn't the king, but he was just, um, I think it was Prince Philip and how all that worked. Well, the crown explains it all. And then it also walks you through history, through World War II and Winston Churchill. And and so, again, it's a period piece. It's historical. Um, and it's a really good show. And it gives you a glimpse of Queen Elizabeth when she was a lot younger. And then recently, the one of the more recent series takes you up through not modern day, but I think it gets you right up to uh, Prince Charles um, marrying Lady Di. And it's really good. So um, – The Crown, I think, is great. Um, Battlestar Galactica, I'm watching that now, and I've been talking about that for a while. My friend Kevin from high school notified me that, number one, Battlestar Galactica was available for free on sci-fi.com and on the sci-fi app because it was no longer on Netflix. And I saw it on Netflix like four or five years ago, and it was great. Uh, As I remember seeing the Battlestar Galactica TV show like in the late 70s, early 80s, and you know, I didn't really understand it, but I was fascinated by it. Now I'm watching it as an adult and I'm really getting it. And it's it's just such a great show because it's about, you know, certainly there's science fiction and and there are, um, uh, you know, spaceships and all of that going to different planets. But there is a political element to it. There's a military element to it. There is a religious angle to this um, show. There is a lot of societal, um, cultural things. You know, there's you know, essentially very similar tribalism, sort of a, a racism that exists uh, between the the humans and the Cylons and the Cylons that are human-like. Um, it, it's it's a fascinating show, and it's very, very well done. Um, Edward Lee Olmos is uh, the captain or the admiral of the Battlestar Galactica, and he does a really, really good job in this program. Um, so I, I strongly recommend it. So I am about two-thirds of the way through season four, which is the final season. And, you know, they're on an expedition to find Earth. And it's – I'm not going to give it away, but I really, really, really like this program, Battlestar Galactica. And it's on sci-fi.com and the sci-fi app, and it's free. Um, Star Trek, man. Uh I remember watching uh, the syndicated Star Trek when I was a kid. I would be up in the Bay Area and I turn on Channel 2, KTVU Channel 2 on my analog dial when we had like five TV stations. And at six o'clock at night or five o'clock, Star Trek was always on. It was always the original series because this was back in the mid to late 70s. And I'd also be able to see Hogan's Heroes or maybe that was on Channel 44, the other the other independent station. But anyways, um, Star Trek, I love that show. And and then, you know, went off the air. And then in the 90s, uh, yeah, in the early 80s and in the, uh, excuse me, the late 80s and early 90s, I began watching 
on television, Star Trek The Next Generation. And I enjoyed that. And then suddenly I saw that Star Trek, the original series, was on Netflix. And I said, you know, I'm going to watch this all the way through because there's only three seasons. And it was it was great. And season one and season two were really, really good. Um, season three was a little bit shaky. Um, but this was in the early days of television, of science fiction. It's groundbreaking. I mean, that's where we saw the first interracial kiss on television was when James Kirk uh, kissed Lieutenant Uhura. Um, you know, white man, a black woman. That was pretty groundbreaking in the 1960s. Um, but really a great show. And and it's not just lasers and space nerdism, but there's a lot of societal things, cultural things that you learn in that show that was just fabulous. Um, so then after I watched that, I said, you know what, I'm going to watch them all. And I went through um, I went through The Next Generation, which is the one with Jean-Luc Picard, which who I loved. He's my favorite captain of all of them. Um, and then I went after that, I watched Voyager, um, which is the one with um, Captain Janeway and her lieutenant was was Tuvok, um, the other Vulcan. And then um, I also watched um, Enterprise, which was the like the prequel of it all. Enterprise is the one with um, – who's that actor's name that was in – he has a CSI program and um, I can't remember his name, but he is uh, – he's very famous, very familiar face. And he is the captain on Enterprise and this is the one where – it was in the very beginning when they when they originally discovered warp drive, and that's when the Enterprise was created, and they went on their initial expeditions, and the technology was a lot cruder than what existed even for Captain Kirk in the original series. And then, oh, and then there was Deep Space Nine, which was fantastic, and that's the the one about the uh, space station that was right near a wormhole um, in space, and so it was a very common almost like a truck stop in the world of space. Uh, but that was a fascinating series as well. So, um, and, and I remember, gosh, this was a while ago, but I went through every episode of every series. And that was a huge commitment because a lot of those series had about 20 episodes, sometimes 23 episodes a season. So if you think that, um, the next generation, I think, was about let's just say twenty episodes a season to make the math easy, times seven seasons. That was like hundred and forty episodes. And then Voyager was the same; it was also seven seasons. That's like roughly another hundred and forty episodes. Um, and then the original series was about twenty episodes a season, if I recall. And there were three of those, so that's another sixty. So, I, and then when you added in Enterprise and you added in Deep Space Nine, which was I think another five or six. Uh, ep- seasons. Um, Enterprise might have only been three or four seasons. But at, at the end of the day, it's like 500 episodes. I mean, it took me a really long time, but I got through them all and I was so happy I did. It was like a sense of accomplishment. Um, but those are all just great, uh, great, great programs. Uh, just really enjoyed those. But it's a commitment and you got to be into Star Trek. Or Star Trek. Uh, but I loved it. Um, Another one I really, really liked, and it was on Amazon. It was The Man in the High Castle. And this is about um, an alternative outcome of World War II where America loses. And the Japanese take over the Western United States. And the Nazis 
take over the eastern United States. And then there's a little bit of a neutral zone in the Rocky Mountains. And it walks through the, the you know, the, this whole alternative history. And then, um, you know, the, the Americans, they're rebels and they're trying to win their country back. And then there is a there is a supernatural element to it as well that I really liked. Uh, but that's a really good program. If you really like World War II era, World War II movies, but you want to have something different, really interesting. So that's um, The Man in the High Castle. Uh, BoJack Horseman. Uh, this is a, a really, really good program on Netflix. So BoJack Horseman is a cartoon series. And you might say, oh, it's a cartoon. It's goofy. It's a cartoon. It's for kids. This is a very, very deep, deep program. Um, and it on many, many levels. So on one level, it's a cartoon and there's a funny aspects to it. And that's that's great in and of itself. But it also is a huge parody of the whole Hollywood scene, um, which is funny at that level. But then if you go even deeper, it goes into like really dark places in human psyche about depression and and addiction to alcohol and drugs and to um, all kinds of, uh, you know, sort of unscru- – some would say immoral behavior, unscrupulous behavior, some dark side, you know, some addictions, um, you know, just – challenges that people get go through in their life, how they cope, how they create these, um, uh, how should I say, they, they, there are some overachievers in there that create this false pretense of optimism and goodiness when inside they're experiencing pain and heartache. Um, just, I mean, I can't properly describe it, but you have to give it a chance. Um, when you start watching it, it's kind of goofy because it's a cartoon and and everyone has a human body, but sometimes they'll have an animal head, like a horse head, like Bojack Horseman is a horse. He's actually used to have a 1990s sitcom that was kind of like Full House, where he was like one of the parents and he was sort of this clean cut good guy. But his personal life was completely the opposite. He was an alcoholic, a drug addict, couldn't have a relationship with anyone without destroying it, um, would go through you know, huge periods of binging on drugs and blackouts and just total self-destructive lifestyle. Um, and it was all about his story, coming through that, going through rehab and everything. And, and all these other characters in it were just incredible. So I, I mean – I can't recommend that that show enough. BoJack Horseman, it's on Netflix. Um, Ken Burns documentary is always great. Um, and a lot of those are on Netflix. The one on the Vietnam War was the most recent one that he had done, which was great. I mean, I got a much better understanding of the nuances of what happened in the Vietnam War by re, uh, watching the Ken Burns documentary. And I think these are all on Netflix. The one he does on the Civil War is excellent. The one he did on Westward Expansion is excellent. Um, And I know the one on baseball. Oh, my God. That one's fantastic. I have that one on DVD. Um, So he he, he even does one on Prohibition. He does one on World War II, which is pretty good. It wasn't as good as the others. I thought Vietnam and the Civil War and Westward Expansion were my three favorites. And then, of course, baseball. Um, But those are all fantastic. Um, 
you know, I didn't originally put this on my list, but as long as we're talking about westward expansion, um, Hell on Wheels, I thought was really good. And that's another AMC program that's on Netflix. And that's about the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. And, you know, it's after the Civil War. So we got uh, people from the Union that fought in the Army uh, for the North. And you got Johnny Rebs that were fighting for the South in the Confederacy. And it's after the war. And then you've got, you know, blacks that are suddenly free, that are participating, excuse me, in the in the construction of the of the railroad. And. And I think if I recall, the term hell on wheels is sort of the name of the city because it always kind of travels with the head of the um, of the of the railroad. So as the railroad moves along, that little city sort of follows it along. And it was very interesting to see the all these different cultures and groups of people come together, the way they settled the West, the way they set up these makeshift communities. And there was always a you know the saloons and 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 the prostitutes and and then there were the um, um, you know the, the the religious people and and there's Mormons in this including Brigham Young that's in this show and then you, then they also are building the railroad from the western side and then we see a lot of the Chinese immigrants and laborers and they're building it and and the railroad comes together and there's some really interesting characters on that show I really like that one um, Hell on Wheels uh, that's on Netflix. Uh, Peaky Blinders. Oh, my God. This is just another awesome show. Um, this is about this um, kind of a gang that was from, I think it's Birmingham in, in England, a, a working class area, a gang. Um, they got involved in basic thuggery in their in their neighborhood, and they kind of worked their way up to make a somewhat legitimate business. You know, they got into gambling and horse racing and then they eventually began to own saloons and and they began to own manufacturing and it was amazing to watch this family um, build their empire and all through that process this is all taking place in the roaring 20s when you know there's a lot of money and um, and they're they're enjoying a lot of that wealth and then as you get near the end of the series it goes through, when the stock market crash occurred and they lost a lot of their money. And so it was just a great series. And the actors there are fabulous. The music in that program is awesome. Um, so again, another, every one of these cases I'm sharing with you are these period pieces that I just really, really like. Um, Stranger Things is on this. And I'm, most everyone seems to have seen that one um, about the, the young kids that are in, is it Indiana? And they encounter a supernatural, you know, a supernatural creature that's in a different dimension. It, it has a lot of similar vibes to watching uh, E.T. the Extraterrestrial or Poltergeist because it takes place like in that early 1980s time frame. So you can see the clothes and the, the, the houses and the cars, the way they're all set up. That's just a great show. And I think... Gosh, what are they? Maybe two or three seasons of that. So Stranger Things is good. Um, Vikings is a great show. Um, I think that's on Netflix. And I think I saw that also on AMC. And so, you know, this is about the Vikings and they got started in Denmark and then they made their raids into England 
um, and settled there and got in a, you know, all kinds of battles there. And then they even have a, a portion of the show is when they went down uh, the river into Paris and attacked Paris, which is fantastic. So Vikings is really good. Um, the Last Kingdom is another Viking-oriented show when they – and it takes place almost entirely in England – um, and how they are trying to integrate into society there and the battles they fight. Love that. Um, Borgia is another good program. This is about uh, Pope Alexander VI. It was right, right around the year 1500. It kind of spanned that plus or minus five or ten years. Um, and just a fascinating program um, about the papacy and the pope is not some angelic celibate soul – but instead, you know, had all kinds of women in his life, um, was a, you know, it was a seat of tremendous power, tremendous wealth. Um, and then you follow his family and the things that they go through, also a historical element to it. Um, there are two Borgias that exist. There's an American version and an English version. The English, I think, was BBC and the American version was done in cooperation with Canal uh, is that how you say it or is it Canal? C-A-N-A-L, which is a television production company in Europe. And so I watched the American Canal version um, that I really liked. I have never gone back and watched the Europe, uh, the BBC version, but I'm sure it would probably be just as good. Um, Last Chance U was terrific. And this is about um, these athletes, their football players that a lot of them have come from, you know, difficult family situations, have gone on to play at, you know, high profile division one universities and then ran into trouble. You know, they either got busted or they had bad grades or they had disappointing seasons and then they fall back. They're D1 bounce backs and they're basically playing in a junior college, community college, fighting for their athletic life. Uh, hoping to get another opportunity to get a, get picked again at a Division One level, you get to meet these kids going through um, their season, and you're rooting for them the whole way through. Uh, great show, and I think there's three seasons of that. So two of those seasons are at a community college in in um, Mississippi, and another one is at a community college. I think it was in Kansas. Uh, so if you love sports, you love football. Um, you like shows with all kinds of interesting characters. That's a great program. And then finally, um, Madam Secretary, I really enjoyed. And I was telling my friend Rick, you know, if you really liked Designated Survivor, um, then you should like Madam Secretary. And this is Tia Leone. Um, and, I, you know, she's been around for a long time. In fact, is she still married to David Duchovny from the X-Files? He, she might be. I'm not sure. Um, but Madam Secretary, a program where she – you know, is a a former, you know, CIA, I think it was CIA. Um, and then she goes on to be a professor at the University of Virginia. And then a person she worked with ends up being president. She gets picked to be secretary of state with very little actually, you know, political experience. And you you ride that wave with her and her family. And she has three children and her husband is what was his name? Tim Daly, who was in that show Wings from back in the 80s and 90s. Um, so he's the husband and he's like a religious scholar, you know, which I like 
when they're mixing history and religion and politics. And it's, it's, it's kind of a little bit lightweight. Things always work out. Um, these complicated political things always seem to get solved. Um, and she always emerges as the heroine. But I really like the show. And then, you know, Peter Frampton was on the program in one episode. And so there's some, there's some cool cultural things in it as well. So I really like Madam Secretary. And I know that the final season, or maybe not the final, but there's a current season that's on CBS right now. So um, I haven't watched that yet, but I hope to. So that's a huge list. And every one of these, well, with the exception of those Ken Burns movies, all of these are series with all multiple seasons and multiple episodes per season. And I know I'm leaving some off. Plus, I'm not even listing the ones that were on my friend Rick's original list, which was Game of Thrones. Oh, my God. So great. And uh, and Breaking Bad and and on down the list. So. We're all stuck at home. We're all sheltering in place. And if you're looking for things to binge watch, I hope these could be good recommendations. You'll notice that I like period pieces and I like science fiction. So I guess that means I don't ever live in our current reality. I'm always living in the past or in the future um, so that you can psychoanalyze me on that one. But uh, I really like these. All of these programs are great. Um, okay. In the bad column, the Olympics were delayed until 2021. That's sad. Um, it makes sense given what's going on. But you know that how disruptive that is to these athletes because they they train and, you know, they kind of get organized. So they're peaking every fourth year. So this is going to throw them off. It's going to be an interesting, an interesting change. You know, you, you think about those athletes that were supposed to go to the Olympics in 1980. Um, but Jimmy Carter, he basically boycotted the Olympics because – the Russians invaded Afghanistan. Never mind the fact that we ended up going back over there 20 years later. Um, but it was sad to see how people's dreams were crushed um, in the 1980 Olympics. And I'm sure you could say the same thing in 88 when Russia boycotted the Olympics in LA. But now we're going through it again. And it's not a boycott. It's just a one-year delay. But I'm certain that there's going to be some athletes that this is going to be awful timing. And there's going to be other athletes that's going to just be sort of a, a gift from heaven. It's going to work out really well from them. So, yeah, and that's just a sign of the times. Um, also in the bad column, I really should have named this the sad column, but David Leland, I love David Leland, and he's been here for so many great podcasts. But we had all these great sports podcasts we were going to do this month. We were going to do one um, after uh, – um, you know, the Mountain West Tournament and, and and Selection Sunday to preview the March Madness. Didn't get to do that. We were probably going to do one. Oh, definitely we were going to do one for Padres opening day. Not doing that. Um, you know, it, I always thought that March and October were my two favorite sports months. March had spring training. March had, um, you know, the, the huge basketball tournament. The NBA was still going strong and then getting near the end of the season. Um, March was when spring, you know, hope eternal, all that. Always love March. And then um, October was always great. Less so for me now. I mean, I used to always like October because it was postseason baseball. Um, the NBA was just getting started. Excuse me. And, um, and the NFL was, you know, really in the heat of the season. Now, I don't really care much about the NFL anymore. But I still say to myself, March and October, my two favorite sports months, and March just has been ripped away from us. And it's really sad. And so, you know, you go on 
Twitter, and I'm I like to participate in Padres Twitter, and everyone's just sad and hoping for the best and wondering when the season's going to start. And so, the fact that sports has been removed from our culture right now it's a big, big missing piece. And for those of you that are sports fans, you might think, "Oh, that's stupid. Who cares about you know men or women running around with a ball?" It means a lot, man. We we put our hopes and our dreams and into certain teams and players that we love or we love to hate, and we miss it, you know. And and it's sad. And I know th- this coronavirus thing is far more serious than losing sports. Um. But it's just one of the unfortunate casualties that has come from this whole thing. And it's sad. So, you know, I think we're finding ways to fill that time. And many people are doing very productive things. I see the things people are doing around their home. Wow. Uh, Things people are doing, you know, binge watching. Um, But we're trying to find a replacement for sports. Um, Also in the bag column, and I just saw the news on this today, um, Noah Syndergaard, the pitcher for the New York Mets, is now going to have Tommy John surgery. So he had a tear in his... UCL. Is that the ulterior cruciate ligament? I think that's the ligament in the elbow that pitchers often blow out. Um, it's, it's disappointing for him, no doubt. But man, the Padres maybe dodged a bullet there. There was a lot of talk that the Padres were going to trade for Noah Syndergaard. Probably would have given up quite a bit to get him. And, um, you know, it's sad for Noah Syndergaard, but the Padres might have gotten lucky on that one. So, but that's in the bad column. And now let's go in the ugly column. And there are two stories I want to share. And this first one, this is a kind of a crazy one. And I want to put this question to you. Have you ever known someone that got into serious, um, um, a serious uh, disciplinary matter with the police that's ever been sentenced, you know, in a felony crime? Do you, have you ever known anyone that's gone through that? Um, I'm thinking through my life, well, drunk driving, I think, is considered a felony, isn't it? I think it is. So I, I know people that have been that have had drunk driving, which is terrible. Um, but generally speaking, mo- most of those are the only victim is the drunk himself. Of course, there are exceptions. Um, but anyways, it turned out that a person I know uh, just got busted for um, for huge securities fraud, um, had created a pyramid scheme and had embezzled money from seniors, basically liquidated their assets in a pyramid scheme, lost all the money. And I'm not going to tell this person's name, um, but he lived here in Poway. His son played basketball with my son. And you know, this is one of those guys where, you know, it's a dad of another kid on your on your son's basketball team. And they play travel basketball and high school basketball together. So I got to know him over the course of about three years. And he was a very interesting character. He, he was always at all the games, really supportive of the boys. He, big guy, really loud um, and always, you know, cheering them on, sometimes getting on their case to make them work harder. But a guy that loved the game, loved his son loved all the kids on the team. And I didn't really know much about his personal life. I didn't really know much about um, you know, what he did for a living. And, and then later I found out that he was a, a financial investor, you know, kind of a 
financial planner, you know, that helped people plan their retirement. Um, I found out later on that he had done that. And then, and then suddenly he was in the news and he was involved in orchestrating a pyramid scheme. And he just recently, within the last week, pleaded guilty. And next month he's going to be sentenced and he may get up as many as 12 years in prison. And, you know, you think about this and you're thinking, okay, well, what he did was a crime. He deserves punishment and he'll get what's coming to him. It's sad. But then you think about his family and his children and how how are they going to be affected by this? And um, you don't know. So I know he's got one child that is still in high school. And I think he has another child who's my son's age who's a student at Long Beach State. And so um, I feel I feel bad for their family. And the other crazy thing is, is I don't know, my, my son, uh, he had a friend in elementary school that uh, another, it was a similar case where um, he was really good friends with this kid in elementary school, um, extraordinarily wealthy family here in town. Um, and I mean, they had a private plane. I mean, this insane, huge house um, here in uh, Poway. And it turned out that he was some, again, I don't really understand the details, but he had set up some sort of a financial instrument, some kind of a fund. But again, it had a Ponzi element to it. Um, and and I, this is over my head. I don't know if I could describe it properly. But he ended up, um, you know, getting busted. Um, he and his partners of um, embezzling or illegally, you know, getting all this money. Uh, and then he ended up being sentenced to jail. And then while he was in jail, he committed suicide. And since then, uh, my son's friend, and he was, the only, he was an only child, and his mom, they left um, Southern California. They moved to the Chicago area and started a new life. Um, but wow, you know, it's interesting. And now granted, I knew the the child, I knew the mom, because again, my son played basketball with this kid and we'd see him at the games and great mom, great kid. Never met the father though, um, in this case. Um, but it's just interesting when people you know, or people that are acquaintances or people that you know of, that you generally don't have any reason to think negatively of them. Um, in some cases, you might even like them. And then you find out that they were doing these unscrupulous things, these illegal things, um, shafting people out of huge amounts of money, suddenly going to jail, you know, felon in prison. And you're like, wow, you know, what you know, what happens behind the curtain with some people is unbelievable. So that's definitely in the ugly column. I'll put another one here. And this is in my own personal pet peeve against school districts and the way they spend our taxpayer dollars. So now in light of this whole shelter at home and the need for school districts and need uh, to organize themselves around online education, the Los Angeles and San Diego Unified School Districts are cooperatively asking the state for $3 billion, with a B, $3 billion to fund online learning. And I saw this, I'm like, oh man, this is just like Measure P that just failed here with Poway Unified. Um, it's a case where these school districts should have been planning for this for the longest time. If they had been planning for online learning a long time ago, they could have been saving money on not having to employ as many teachers. They could have been, this could have been a huge cost saver for them. And $3 billion? Really? 
I mean, we do corporate meetings, you know, with Zoom or with Google Hangouts. It's like it's virtually free. How in the heck is they need three billion? Now you know this is when you're going to see cronyism there. Um, you'll, you're going to see software vendors that make specialized online education platforms and people that sell curriculum. It's all going to fall into that world. There's going to be cronyism and and um, but it's just this is a case where school districts didn't plan appropriately. Then when you know, everything goes south in an instant when the whole marketplace goes sideways. The whole game is shifted where online learning becomes a priority. And then they're asking for more money when they could have been making the investment before. But instead, they kept paying their management, their administrators, their teachers and giving raises upon raises upon raises while never really investing in making their organization better. It's not unlike what's happening with these corporations and these stock buybacks. You know, they're taking the money. And they're spending it on these stock buybacks, um, basically a gamble, betting on themselves to enrich stockholders or to be or to enrich executives with these really attractive bonuses. Um, and then when that whole thing goes to hell in a handbasket, then they show up at the front door of the taxpayers and ask for bailout money. So to me, this is very similar. So um, I put this in the ugly column. I, I haven't really researched it in too much detail yet. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if our local school districts um, start singing the same tune. So we'll see. Okay, so, um, yeah, let's follow me on social media. Love the conversation. Love the dialogue. Follow us on Facebook, on Twitter. Leave some comments here in the YouTube article um, or in the YouTube video, you know, in the comments section. I like corresponding with those of you that are listening or watching. Uh, But, yeah, join us. Um, You can also subscribe at johnreillyproject.com slash subscribe. And for the closing quote, I, I want to go back to Bojack Horseman. And again, so many deep, heavy things go on in that show. I mean, it's it's really extraordinarily well written. But this was kind of a, a fun comment that was made that you, you hear it and you went, hey, I never thought about it that way. And this is one of them. And it's a, it was in the final episode of the final season. And it was about the hokey pokey. And you remember that song, you know, we do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself around. That's what it's all about. Well, man, people say, yeah, well, what's it all about? And people say, oh, yeah, it's all about the hokey pokey, right? But it's not. That's not what it's all about. What it's all about is turning yourself around. You do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself around. That is what it's all about. And it was used as a metaphor in the show about um, – I think it was, was it Todd, which was his kind of live-in roommate, Bojack's live-in roommate, about how he had a, yeah, it was Todd. And it was his relationship with his mother. And he had had a a, a damaged relationship with his mom. They didn't like each other. They didn't talk for long periods of time. And then suddenly, you know, he made an effort and rekindled that relationship with his mom and he turned it around. And... Because I think maybe in the show he might have said, yeah, my life right now is kind of like the hokey pokey uh, because I turned myself around. And that is what it's all about. So what is just Isn't that cool? When I heard that, I was just like, hey, I like that. Um, So, yeah, good old Bojack Horseman. And, and, And again, this is just sort of a fun, lightweight thing that was shared. That show 
Wow, that show is something. Uh, I strongly encourage you to watch BoJack Horseman. Um, okay, so this is episode 122 of the John Riley Project. It's Tuesday, March 24th, 2020. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And let's keep an eye on this whole coronavirus thing and keep an eye on, you know, the tragic loss of life and hoping to come up with a vaccine and testing and, and some sort of a, a medical scientific solution. But at the same time, let's keep an eye on the economics. Let's keep an eye on cronyism and special interests and how people are not letting a good crisis go to waste. So got to keep an eye on those people too. We'll see you later, folks. Bye-bye.